0: Hey everybody from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer.
2: And I'm Marisa Lagos. This week we are delighted to have with us one of the Republican congressmen representing a district in Northern California. I'm talking about Mike Garcia.
0: Garcia beat Democrat Christy Smith twice, and now he's facing off against her a third time in November, this time with a new district that has more Democrats than before. He joins us to talk about his career as a Navy fighter pilot, his agenda in Congress, he plans to win over Latino voters and other things as well. First, uh, Marisa, some good news this Yay! week. We're going to be hosting a big debate on October 23rd. Uh, Senator uh, Senator Brian Daly said yes uh, to our invitation, joining Governor Gavin Gav- governor, Newsom. governor Newsom. Governor The, the governor is going to be here, uh, and so uh, very exciting. It's going to be on KQD Radio uh, mm-hmm. and also on television. We'll be streaming it online, uh, and lots to lots to ask them about.
2: And I don't Brag, but it stands to be the only gubernatorial debate this year. So we're pretty thrilled to have this opportunity. We're going to sit down. Um, You know, I think that our regular listeners will really recognize the format. It's not going to be a like you get thirty seconds and you get thirty seconds. We want this to be a free flowing conversation. We really get at who are these two men running for governor? Uh, What are the criticisms of Newsom that Dally is you know leveling, and and what's his responses? And what would Dally do if he? Overcame the odds and became a uh, governor. So yeah, exactly. um, we are going to be asking our audience for question ideas. So. Yep. And
0: you can find that uh, online. There will be a, a, a little form to submit questions if you right. We'll like. put
2: the link to that in our show notes. So yeah. check that out if you're interested. Yeah.
0: So we'll, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, between now and October 23rd. But uh, we're looking forward to that. Also, and I'm sure we'll talk to the candidates about uh, some of these things that Berkeley IGS poll this week. Really interesting. Two propositions, 26 and 27, which would legalize sports betting. Uh, we expect over $400 million to be spent on this, a record-breaking. Wild. And you'd think, since both sides are spending a boatload of money, that... Uh, one of them might pass, but the poll this week showed that they're both underwater by a fair amount. Uh, Prop 26, that's the one from the tribal casinos. No 42%, 31% support. 27 uh, from the online uh, mobile uh, companies like FanDuel. No 53%. All the ads, you can't turn on a TV without seeing an ad for Prop 27 or against 27 and uh, voters just aren't buying it,
2: even though some of that money would go to homeless programs. It's interesting. But I do think that it seems like this these are standing to become the most expensive ballot measures right in history, I believe. and sometimes u s history in u s history world state history. history. but i I do think that the you know, having two conflicting ballot measures and they are running ads against each other and attacking the other one on an issue that I think Californians have always been a little reticent around sort of expanding uh, betting that it, it seems like they're kind of taking each other down in flames. They are. Know? And I think
0: maybe the tribes are just fine with that, you know, because uh, they still have their casinos. Uh, they, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily the end of the road for them. It never uh, is. It never is. Ballot
2: measures, is it?
0: No, exactly. So um, we'll have to see how how those play out and as you point out the little sweetener of oh we're going to help you know solve homelessness that people aren't buying that apparently either that is a very you know with ballots set to go out pretty soon That's a high uh a hill for those ballot measures. And I think it's worth
2: noting that these ads started before. I think there was even num- ballot numbers for these propositions. Right. Back in early summer, we saw uh, some of especially the Prop 27 supporters, I believe, coming out and starting to kind of lay the groundwork. And so uh, I, I
0: think people just get tired of they, You know, it's like yeah. a pox on both your houses. You know, when they see all these ads, it's like, you know what? I'm, I'm a little confused and I'm tired of seeing these. I'm just voting no, yeah. which, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure there'll be plenty of post-election analysis of that. One other uh, issue that the uh, Berkeley IGS poll measured was support for care courts, this legislation which the governor signed, which will compel more people uh, with addiction and mental health problems into treatment, a whopping 76%. Percent support for yeah. that uh, legislation it hasn't even taken effect bipartisan yet. Support. Bipartisan, bipartisan. Eighty percent of Dems, sixty-nine percent of Republicans. I think it just speaks, I think, to the sense of like what we're doing ain't working, and we got to try something different.
2: Yeah, we had Mayor Lyndon Breed at KQED this week, and from San Francisco talking about a lot of this. And I do think that there is, you know, obviously bipartisan, bipartisan frustration with not just homelessness and mental illness, but drug use, the fentanyl crisis, um, and really this, I think, is indicative of the fact. That yeah, the, the 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 idea that what's what's happened is not working, and really that a lot of the critiques of care court that it would sort of attack people's civil liberties did not actually land with the electorate. I think this is something. Um like you said, we're going to be talking to Newsom and Brian Daly about, um, because I think that Newsom himself would admit that this is not a silver bullet. Right. And so then what do they do to build on top of it and how do they implement
0: it? Yeah, exactly. And there's certainly uh, they're going to need to spend a lot of money for beds and therapists and counseling and all those things. Right.
2: We don't have mental health, enough mental health support. Infrastructure. Yeah. And uh, and we're seeing um, a lot of challenges meeting the need when it comes to drug treatment as well.
0: Exactly. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, turn we're going to be joined by LA congressman Mike Garcia. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED.
1: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa abdel from Throughline.
2: If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today.
1: You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org/podcast. That's donate.kqed.org/podcast.
0: And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're excited to have with us today one of the few Republicans in recent years to flip a California House seat from blue to red. Mike Garcia is a former Navy fighter pilot who represents Congressional District north of L.A. It includes the cities of Lancaster, Santa Clarita and Palmdale. Congressman Garcia, welcome to Political Breakdown. Good to have you.
1: Hey, good, good to be here, guys. Thanks, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Well, you know, on our show, we always like to talk about people's bio. You know, how they got to where they are, and so we want to begin, you know, kind of at the at beginning, the beginning. <laughs> at the beginning with you. I know we know you were raised in Santa Clarita by your mom and your stepdad. Your <laughs> birth parents were both from Mexico, I think. Um, uh,
1: just my just my father's side. Yeah, my mom uh, was born here in the United States, and my dad's uh, side uh, born in Sonora, Mexico. Uh, he immigrated here when he was nine years old, back in 1959, with the rest of his family. Yeah.
2: So, were you closely tied to your Mexican family growing up, or?
1: Yeah, yeah, very that? much so. Uh, you know, at, at one point, I actually lived uh, with my grandmother on my dad's side, as well as my dad. So, wow. you know, three generations under one roof. Uh, uh, and then uh, a lot of my aunts and uncles are still living here in in my district in the Antelope Valley uh, from my dad's side. My my father just passed away a couple of months ago. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, sorry. He's looking down on us. But, uh, you know, that's where I learned the work ethic, the pride in, in working hard and valuing uh, your your quality time with your family, but also the, the, you know, reaping the benefits of the hard work and really earning it. I think that's the biggest thing we take from our from our heritage. What yeah. was
0: it like growing up in a multi-generational household like that?
1: Well, it wasn't full time. It was just a few weeks here and there, but it was crowded. You know, living in uh, uh, in my grandmother's house in Silmar, uh, small, probably one thousand square foot home, uh, uh, a little cramped. But you know, we, we we figured out how to make it work, and uh, you know, it makes you appreciate things a little bit more when you when you're able to uh, uh, get the little bit bigger home and and get a little more freedoms, especially as a kid. But you you recognize that uh, you know you need to work a little harder, and it pays off uh, in the end. So uh you know and that's that's the thing that i'm i'm proud of is that uh, i didn't i didn't come from this yeah you know uh uh, wealthy background. I, I, have worked for what I've achieved and, um, I've learned it through hard work and, and success is a product of that, that work ethic that I learned as a very young kid. Yeah.
2: Tell us about your mom and stepdad. I know your stepdad was a LAPD officer. Um, what, what was your mom like, or what is she like and what was growing up in that household all about?
1: Yeah. My mom's is still, she lives, you know, just two miles away from me and she's, uh, the, the, patri- uh, the the matriarch of our family, obviously the backbone and, She still watches, uh, helps with watching my two boys when I'm on the road. uh, uh, Preston and Jet. Preston is now 16, and Jet is six. So, uh, my mom uh, was a fantastic role model for me. uh, Strong Irish German descent, you know, as well as my grandmother. So, uh, uh, always had her as a role model. Again, strength and and fortitude, and and principles, and, and what she believed in her values. And then my stepfather, yeah, was LAPD uh, from the 70s, early 70s on. And, and uh, so really got to see firsthand what our what our police officers go through and the risks that they go through on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, it's an uncomfortable feeling not knowing if a family member is coming home that night when you see things like the the riots and, you know, 1992 and uh, the, the Hollywood shooting, the, the, the big Hollywood shooting that he was a part of. And so. You really appreciate what, what law enforcement goes through and, and you really you know understand that they're human beings um, and they're they're vulnerable in many cases. And so we do need to back the blue and we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can for law enforcement.
0: What do you remember about that time? You mentioned the Rodney yeah. King riots and, you know, the beatings yeah. that were caught on on tape. One of the very first times something like that was videotape. What what was your stepdad's take on all that?
1: Well, obviously very heartbreaking. Uh, the, the riots themselves, um, you know, I remember being in Santa Clarita. We, we're roughly, what, 40 miles north of downtown LA and, and where the, the worst of the riots were. And I remember uh, knowing he was, he was in the streets that day. He was, uh, uh, I believe he was a lieutenant at that time in the LAPD and uh, part of the leadership that was going around to assess what was going on. And you see you know, over the hills south of us in Santa Cruz, you see the smoke billowing up from the fires that were burning from the looting and the rioting. And, uh, you know, it's it, it's nerve wracking to know that your loved one and my stepdad, who, uh, you know, treated me like his son, and I treat him like my father was down in the midst of that. And so, um, you know, the, the the police, the the rank and file sometimes, uh, you know, get a bad rap for things. And, and And in the end, they're trying to just make peace. They're trying to, make sure that everyone can go home that night safely. And, and we've got to make sure that we do the same for them.
2: Well, despite the anxiety that must have caused you as a kid, I know from age six, you wanted to be a, a fighter pilot. Um, yeah. What what drew you to that? How, how did you get that exposure? Like, did you guys go to air shows? I mean, I grew up near Miramar Air Force Base. So that was a common thing we saw, you know, as a yeah. kid.
1: Yeah, no, I grew up... Uh... Actually, when I, when I lived in the San Fernando Valley, I lived in an apartment complex with my mom and my older brother. It was about seven is, is seven years older than I am. Uh, and so we lived just uh, on short, final approach of Van Nuys Airport. So we would see the C-130 cargo planes from the Air National Guard, like, you know, fly 300 feet above our apartments. And uh, I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I was five or six years old at that time. And then my brother uh, got me into model airplane building. We went to all the air shows, you know, the Van Nuys Air Show, Edwards Air Force Base and uh, Miramar as, as well as uh, El Toro at the time. And so I I just got into it and I ended up taking a tour of the USS Ranger, which was a, an older aircraft carrier. And it happened to be in dry dock where they, you know, they, they lifted up out of the water to cool. do repair. And I was eight years old. Uh, and I remember walking underneath this aircraft carrier and, and and then being in the bridge of the, of the captain's uh, chair, you know, and seeing the flight deck, I was just inspired. I knew then at the age of eight, I wanted to be a naval aviator, fly jets off of an aircraft carrier. And then of course, you know, Top Gun. Comes I was out just about 10. to
2: ask about Top Gun. <laughs> it just yeah. felt like yeah.
1: That came out when it was, when I was 10 and I was like, yep, yeah, this is uh, obviously clearly what I wanted, but then everyone wanted to do it. And so it did become actually a little more competitive for my generation to to not only go to the Naval Academy, but also to get a, a flying billet. Um, and then to, to, you know, be able to be blessed to be able to fly fighter jets after flight school was very competitive. And, uh, I realized my dream and I was able to just put the blinders on, you know, everyone told me how hard it was and how impossible it is. It's like saying you want to be a, a major league baseball player when you're eight, you know, no one believes it, but, uh, uh, there's a, only a few hundred naval aviators at any given time, and, and uh, I was honored and blessed. But again, it was on the back of hard work. It was on the back of a lot of studying and a lot of, uh, you know, f- uh, workout uh, physically. You know, working out and, and making sure I was in, in the right condition to do it. And, uh, and but you, what a huge honor!
0: And I know you, your your son's, your your younger son, is named Jet J E T T. I assume. <laughs> yeah, that is no yeah.
1: coincidence. Well, no actually it wasn't my call. My wife wanted to name him Jed, and I eventually uh, rolled over on it. I didn't want people to think that it was me, you know, trying to uh, <laughs> self-prophesize my son into a, a career like that, but he is uh, a spitting image of me and he's he's uh, he's into aviation now as well and baseball and everything that I was, so uh, we'll see. I don't I don't uh, I let my kids uh, figure out their own way and just uh, help them and uh, treat, you know, teach them the right values. Treat, uh, teach them the right principles, so that whatever they want to do, we can we can yeah. uh, you know, make sure that they're successful in it.
0: So you went from high school to the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. Um, mm-hmm. You've got a master's degree in national security from Georgetown in 1998. Um, mm-hmm. What you know? What drew you to that? What was that experience
1: like? Uh, it was it was a fantastic experience. Uh, what what they had at the Naval Academy was a program where if you finished your credits uh, a semester early and you had a GPA over, you know, 3.7 or whatever it was, uh, the Navy would would help pay for graduate school during your last semester at the Naval Academy. So I graduated the Naval Academy in May of 1998, um, but but I started taking graduate courses at Georgetown in January of 1998. So six months, five, six months before I graduated, I was actually starting my graduate program at, at Georgetown. And so it was it was weird because I still had to go back to the Naval Academy every night to sleep, still had to participate in the drills and the, all the military uh, you know, regimen that the Naval Academy is known for as a senior there. Uh, but then in the morning I had to drive to Washington, D.C. to attend courses at uh, Georgetown. Um, so I got to see kind of both ends of the spectrum. And even even though uh, you know, Georgetown was at the time a pretty conservative school as well. Uh, it was still a real college campus that I had never experienced. So it was like getting, you know, released from uh, prison every day to go uh, (laughs) hang out with the regular folks. So, but learned a lot, just fantastic teachers, learned a lot about national security, not only our nation's history, but the strategic partnerships with nations like Israel and Taiwan. And that's been really foundational work for me. And that's something I don't talk about too much on the campaign trail, but I am a national security you know, nerd. I love uh, all things national security, not just the military, but the, the geopolitical partnerships, the histories of, of our partnerships and uh, making sure that we're, we're doing you know, what's right, but also learning from the lessons of our past mm-hmm. and making sure that we're not repeating those, the, those mistakes that we've made as a nation before.
2: Yeah. I know you saw combat during the second Iraq war. I'm curious like what you took from it and if, if there's anything you think people who have not been in that experience should know.
1: Well, you know, I spent, uh, by the time I was there, let's see, it was 2003. So, you know, I was 27 years old. Um, I had been flying the F-18 Super Hornet at that point for two years professionally. And so uh, between three years of flight school, two years of training leading up to that, I, you know, I had, I was, I was ready for combat, but you always, you always feel vulnerable, obviously being launched off the front end of an aircraft carrier at night. Uh, going into a foreign nation, uh, crossing borders, uh, in, in many cases across multiple countries, uh, you've got Iran to the to the east uh, of where we launched. Uh, you know, illuminating you and targeting you the entire time, and not shooting at you, but they they were a threat. And then once you get in country into Iraq, you know, you're you're flying over people that want to kill you, and your job is to make sure that the good guys on the ground, and in our case, it was mostly Marines, but a lot of Army soldiers on the ground were were protected and, and they were able to work their way north. So they they would start in Kuwait uh, when we arrived in early 03. Uh, they were, uh, you know, pushing out of Kuwait and then north into Baghdad and Tikrit. And this was when we hadn't uh, caught Saddam Hussein yet. So every morning we woke up, we, we sort of, you know, looked forward to hopefully I was the guy that was going to find Saddam. And um, they ended up finding him, you know, a month or two after we left. But I was there for uh, seven or eight months in, in, in the Persian Gulf there and serving uh, in combat operations. And what you learn is uh, that, that you know, every moment is precious and, and that the human life is, is frankly pretty frail and that um, war is an ugly thing. Uh, I, I think we, we as elected officials do need to take uh, these types of situations very seriously and make sure that we're looking at all options before we put our troops in harm's way. Um, but as a former naval aviator who served in combat, I, I can tell you that I'm, I'm the last one that wants to go to war. I'm the last one that wants to use our military, uh, in a kinetic way, the way we did in Iraq. And, uh, but we do need that deterrence and we've got to make sure that we, we stand as that, that deterrence to avoid war. And if necessary, we we're ready so that we win the war, but, um, yeah. Yeah. it's a, it's an amazing, you know, spiritual experience to, to, with, with just the push of one button to release, you know. Uh, 4,000 pounds of high explosive ordnance that you know is is going to you know do do damage um, and so it's a it's a responsibility that we don't glorify I, I don't look back on it and, and think how uh, cool of an experience it it was it was a great job and Uh, a massive responsibility, but I'm glad we were able to make sure that those Marines and those Army soldiers on the ground came home uh, at the levels of, especially in 2003. Yeah,
0: those were the really difficult years with Fallujah and everything. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. Our guest today is Republican Congressman Mike Garcia. His L.A. County district includes the cities of Santa Clarita, Palmdale, and Lancaster. He's facing off for the third time against Democrat Christy Smith, who by the way, it was our guest earlier this year, in case you want to listen back to that for a comparison. Congressman, you've said um, that you got involved in politics or wanted to run for office in part because of COVID. Um, and I realize that you actually ran for the first time in 2019, but you know ran for a full term in 2020. What was it about the way... California or the nation handled COVID that made you want to get involved in public policy?
1: Yeah. And just to clarify, I, I certainly didn't like the way the nation or California handled COVID, but it wasn't the inspiration for me running. I, I didn't have any inspirations of running for office or being a politician until the 2018 elections. Um, what I saw in 2018 was uh, someone in our district get elected uh, by the name of Katie Hill, who I, I frankly... I was shocked that she was elected. I, I was I was following the election, but I wasn't participating as much as I, I should have. And I wasn't someone who was a political animal. I wasn't an activist. I wasn't part of any, you know, political clubs or anything. I was just a businessman at that time at Raytheon. Um, and, and when that election happened, it was literally the next day I, I realized that I needed to be more involved and that I didn't uh, believe she was qualified to to represent us uh, in our district. I didn't think she had the life experiences, um, the family experiences to understand what uh, our district needs were. And I said, look, you know, I can complain about it or I can do something about it. So I, I ended up uh, running for Congress uh, almost immediately after her election and uh, left my job at Raytheon to run full time shortly thereafter. And um, and And my instincts were correct. She ended up, having some unforced errors, some some issues, some ethical issues that uh, brought her down. And um, I was looking forward to a head-to-head competition against her, but um, she resigned in December of 2019, and, and I was sworn in um, for the special election a few months later in May of 2020. But you're right, the, the way we handled COVID as a nation was, was um, you know, we, we didn't know what we were getting into initially. We didn't know how bad it was going to get. And so the initial reaction uh, was based on fear rather than data. We didn't have a lot of data, so we made some you know, decisions um, that, that hurt our economy, but we did it knowing that we were trading, uh, making those trades. Uh, but it went on for too long. And, and frankly, this state stayed shut down too long. This government was incentivizing people to stay home for too long. And we ended up spending way too much money in the form of uh, COVID relief that, that actually wasn't doing anything to relieve the, the pressures of COVID. And and now we face you know, the situation where we've, we've spent in Congress about $10 trillion over the course of 24 months. We now see record, 40 uh, year record high inflation at eight and a half percent, $31 trillion uh, at the federal level of debt. Uh, and it's backbreaking to the average American. And these, the, you know, what we're seeing as progressive economic policies are now the most regressive uh, economic results that, that impact the, the lower income and middle income families the worst. And it it does look a lot like California. Right. And so this is why I ran. My opponent was an assemblywoman in Sacramento. She's she's now, like you said, Scott, running for a third time. Um, She's been behind a lot of these terrible economic policies coming out of Sacramento. And I I just think we need to get back to sound fiscal uh, behavior patterns, just like the average family required to do.
2: Well, tell us about like if Republicans retake Congress, what are what are your plans for tackling inflation? And I think particularly gas prices in this moment.
1: Yeah. So uh, step one is to get back to normal spending. And I sit on the Appropriations Committee, so I see I have a front row seat in, in these debates, uh, these massive spending bills that have been uh, we've been hitting votes on. Although
2: well, to be fair, President Trump and Republicans passed a huge tax cut that impacted our national debt enormously as well.
1: True. So, so I'll, I'll address that. The 2017 uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act, um, it actually was becoming solvent and going into the black and Uh, It is actually, if we continue that, it will actually be a net positive revenue generating. Now, the thing I didn't like about Trump's tax plan was the SALT cap, the state and local tax deduction that just kills. I mean, that was literally meant to be kind of a middle finger uh, to California and New Yorkers, right, because of where we are in our tax policies. Uh, So my first piece of legislation was H.R. 202 to remove the state and local tax deduction cap of $10,000 and I, I, you know, I haven't gotten the support of a lot of my colleagues on this side of the aisle because they think it's a California problem, but it's actually starting to affect Texas and other states now because property values are going up. So we do need to be cutting taxes right now. The The, the bottom line is, is that in 2017, every tax cut or every tax bracket did receive a cut. But the bigger thing and the the, the point of the original question is to make sure that we're, we're not spending more than we're bringing in. And in these last two years, when you look at what... The, 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 the House and the Senate have passed relative to spending bills uh, with this Democrat-led Congress as well as the White House, we're seeing 18 percent year-over-year spending increases. So uh, 12 spending bills across all federal agencies are averaging 15 to 18 percent year-over-year. And you do that two times in a row, that compounds literally into 35, 40 percent increases. That is supernatural and parabolic uh, spending that we haven't really seen as a nation. And so the rate of debt increase is the problem that we have right now. That's and it's really challenging us in terms of the inflation. So cutting spending, not necessarily going to negative spending growth, but but getting back to normalized two to three percent growth uh, to be nominal and hopefully put a little downside pressure on this inflation problem. Yeah. Um-
0: What would you say to, uh, you know, voters who agree with you that the economy is a problem? They don't like Biden, but they're really concerned about other issues like abortion uh, and the fact that you're very pro-life, anti-abortion. Like, how do you how do you talk to voters like that, including many Latinos who are in your district?
1: Yeah, and what I'm, what we're seeing is the Hispanic Latinos are actually pro-life for the most part as well uh, with their backgrounds. So, so, you know, the, the bottom line is you, you don't have to, you know, make one choice and sacrifice the other. And in our case in California, we have a, a proposition on the ballot that you can, if you're a strong pro-life or you're strong uh, pro-abortion, you have the option with Prop 1.
2: But you've uh, sponsored okay. a federal law that would uh, define uh, contraception from the moment of fertilization, right? So... That would ban abortion federally.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry. No, that, that wouldn't ban language. abortions, but it it, it, would, it did define uh, conception, not contraception. <laughs>
2: yes, <laughs> misspeaking.
1: But yes, and but the bottom line is is that the Dobbs case, the, the 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 Supreme Court has ruled that this is a state issue. So what what I think is inconsequential uh, relative to this. This is being decided by the states now. This is literally in accordance with the Constitution, a state uh, right issue, and. And, and that's what voters are gonna be voting on. As Californians, we're gonna be able to do that. Other states are doing this as well. So, uh, you, and, and regardless of how you feel about abortion, you shouldn't have to be also handcuffed to uh, this terrible economic uh, condition that's that's gonna go downhill if we continue to elect folks who don't understand basic economic principles. You know, economics is just physics with dollar signs. And when folks who are put in charge of these, these budgeting decisions have no experience in the business world, or Uh, economics writ large uh, and they're they're handed blank checks that are underwritten by American taxpayer dollars. That's that's how we end up in the positions that we are in. And and we've got to get back to sensible uh, spending and and responsible, uh, you know, uh, budgeting with with especially our taxpayer dollars. All
2: right. We have like 30 seconds left. I did want to mention, you know, you were there on January 6th. I know that you voted uh, against certifying some state election results. Uh, what's your message to people who are concerned about just the state of our democracy and whether we are going to have free and fair elections when we have a former president who continually says that it wasn't a free and fair election?
1: Yeah, I don't speak for other politicians. I never do that. I don't defend any politicians. Uh, my my loyalty is to the Constitution of the United States. That's, that's why I'm here. That's why I wore the uniform. I couldn't care less about the parties. Uh, uh, I think we need weaker parties and stronger leaders. That's why I'm doing this. Look, uh, and, and I didn't certify Pennsylvania and Arizona because they, the, those processes violated Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 of the Constitution that says that only the state legislative bodies are, are uh, able to uh, influence the time, manner, location of elections. It's in All black right. and white. Right. In the we'll
2: have to leave it there, my Garcia. We are Thank out you town. so much. Thank you so
0: much for joining us. Really appreciate right. it. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio.
2: Don't forget to check out our voter guide. It's at kqed.org slash voter guide. Our engineers, is Katie McMurrin. I'm Marisa. Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos.
0: And I'm Scott Schaefer. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Don't forget, if you'd like to ask a question at the October 23rd debate between Governor Newsom and Senator Daly, you can find us on Twitter. Send us your questions. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.